Romans chapter 9. The book of Romans chapter 9. should be a Bible next to you. You can grab that. would love for you to follow along um, in the Word. We're going to be flipping around a lot. We're going to go to a lot of different places in the Word today. We finished Romans 8 um, a couple months ago now, so we've really spread out our Roman study over this past year. Um, so I know it's, it can be hard to remember and retain um, a lot of what we've talked about. But I just want to celebrate first, before we get into Romans 9, that I was so encouraged this week um, by our men and women's fellowships on Wednesday. And uh, man, if you're not yet involved, would love to encourage you to come if you can make it. It's an awesome time. We meet here at 7. The ladies are here in the auditorium. I don't know how their study's going. I heard it was good, but the men's study was awesome. I did a little bit of my homework this week. Um, Okay, the guys... Good, okay. Mona's Mona's testifying for us. But I did a little bit of the homework um, this week in our Romans 8 book, guys, and I found myself praying, like, Lord, help me understand the gospel more, what Jesus has done. As, you know, we're, we were just looking at Romans 8, 1 through 4, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And just understanding, what does that mean for us? And I've preached this, and I still have to return to it and say, man, I need this again. I need this afresh. I need fresh understanding, fresh eyes when I see this. And I need the Lord to do that work in my heart. And Romans 8 is what we've come from. One of the most victorious, encouraging passages in all of our Bible. Romans 8. And so I want you to think about, we're going to read the last few verses to springboard us into chapter 9. But I want us to retain Romans 8 as we move into chapter 9. Um, We need that context. This morning, we venture into one of the hardest sections of the Bible, Romans 9 through 11. We have finished Romans 1 through 8 over the past year, and I would encourage you to revisit those sermons. You can listen to them on YouTube. There's a playlist. Romans 8 ended with such glory as we saw the beautiful truths that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we saw the truth that we can never be separated from Christ's love, and many more. We're more than conquerors. We're free from sin. We walk by the Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit. These are victorious truths that lift our soul in this dark world. And it's from those beautiful truths that we now enter into Romans 9. And it would make a lot of sense to us if we just went from chapter 8 straight to chapter 12. Let's, let's go in your Bibles real quick. Let's go to, to, to Romans 8. Let's look at the last few verses of Romans chapter 8, okay? Grab a Bible there if you need to. Verse 37 of chapter 8. Say amen if you're there. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly... I'm in the wrong version. Forgive me. Let me get to the CSB here. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the beginning of chapter 12, if you want to go there real quick, look how naturally it flows right into chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God everything he's done for us, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. It would flow very nicely. But chapter 8 doesn't go into chapter 12. Chapter 8 goes into chapter 9. By the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul goes on to pen the chapters that have been some of the most difficult to understand and swallow. And as we work through these chapters, many of us will be nagged by the question, why? Why do we have to think about this, Paul? Why do we have to go there? So I urge you this morning, 
as you hear that question in your head, let's try not to make why the primary question to answer as we work through these chapters, but rather to humble ourselves and ask, what is the Spirit trying to show me through these words? In these chapters, we are going to discover God's bigness and our smallness. We are going to discover His control of all things and our lack of control. Some of what we read will cause us to struggle and hopefully wrestle with God until He takes us deeper into surrender and worship. We must seek surrender when things don't make sense. We must seek surrender when things do make sense and we don't at all like them. One of the recurring themes in the next few chapters is this question. What about Israel? What about Israel? If you remember, we've already seen this come up many times through chapters 1 through 8. Paul has been unpacking for us the gospel. He's been helping us understand, here's how we're saved. Here's what Jesus has done, and here's how it works to make us saved from sin and hell. And now that you're saved from sin and hell, and you're made something new, new, this is who you are, and this is what your life should look like because of who you are now. God has made you a new creation. He's made you something new, and now this is what your life should look like. And throughout that process, Paul has referred back to and brought up the nation of Israel. Why? It may seem random and unnecessary for us to talk about Israel, but for thousands of years, get this, Israel was the only people of God. We were the Gentiles. Everyone in here. We were those excluded from God's people. We had to jump through these special hoops just to be a part of Israel. Israel and even then we didn't we we didn't have access to certain things feel that for a moment God chose a people thousands of years ago the nation of Israel and our faith originated from this Middle Eastern country God made a covenant with Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people and now since Jesus came And with his blood on the cross and his resurrection, initiated a new covenant. And that new covenant includes whoever believes in him. What does that mean for Israel now? Is there any value in being a Jew? How do we just switch? How does the nation of Israel just switch now? How how do we process this? This is all brand new in Paul's day. And Paul actually answers the question, what is the value of being a Jew? If you remember back to chapter 3, he starts with this. He says, what, so what is the advantage of the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant of Israel? Considerable in every way. First, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Paul says first, but then he never gives us the second benefit. He never goes on to say, and second, and third, he, we have to wait until now, chapter 9, where Paul's actually going to say, in verse, uh, I think, 3 and 4, he's going to say, here's all the other benefits of, of being a Jew as well. But here's the deal, though. Why does it matter? Some of you may have already lost interest this morning. But here's one reason why it matters, and it is the question we seek to answer today. Are you listening? This is the question. Does God lose his children? Does God lose his children? And some of you have been in the faith a while. You already have your answer set. But let's find out from Scripture. Let's submerge ourselves in the text to answer this question. We don't just know it because we want it to be true. Because I need that to be true. We need that to be true, right? That God doesn't lose his children. We need that to be true. But what about Israel? Who wanted Jesus killed and twisted Pilate's arm into doing it? The Jews. Israel. His own people. Who were Paul's number one adversary? As we're reading through Acts, 
Who opposes Paul the most? The Jews. Israel. They killed their own Messiah. Look at what John says. In chapter 1, verse 11 of his gospel, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So has God lost his own people? Is God just done? Did he throw them away? Because they rejected him? Again, to us, this may not seem to be a relevant question, but Paul says, no, this is relevant, and we need to address it. In verse 6, Paul is going to suggest that the word of God is at stake in this conversation. It's that serious. And think about it. If God did lose his children, Israel, then what will keep him from losing us? All of a sudden, put like that, it concerns us now. And now I hope you are curious. So let's submerge ourselves in the text, Romans 9 1 through 13. Remember what we've just come from. The love, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And then he says, I speak the truth in Christ. Verse 1. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all. Praised forever. Amen. Now it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works but from the one who calls, she was told this, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. That's Paul's quoting from the prophet Micah, chapter 1, verse 2. And when you, if you read through chapters 9 through 11, you see that Paul is going to bring a ton of the Old Testament and, and unpack it to prove his argument here. Now, let's just be honest. Let's get real. Raise your hand if you feel a little lost after reading that. Anybody? I'm not forcing anyone to feel lost. Okay, it's good to know. Good to know. Hopefully... Let's pray. I'm going to pray, and let's pray that God can bring some clarity to this situation, all right? Because as I'm reading it, I'm already thinking, I'm like, does this make any sense to anyone here? Um, but it does make sense, and we're going to work through that. Are you ready to listen? Are you ready to lean in to the complexity today? This is the Word of God, beloved. He has something for us. Father, you are our God. You are the one who chooses your children. Lord, we need minds that are sober and awake and alert and active and engaged this morning. But more than that, we need hearts that are open, that are surrendered. that are seeking you. So Lord, turn the bent of our hearts this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears. May we hear what you're saying to us through the word, what you inspired Paul to write. They are your words through Paul. That is the assertion we make this morning. That is the faith in which we enter this place and enter into this time. God, feed us. Feed us with truth. Feed us with understanding this morning. In the name 
of Jesus. I plead the blood over any accusation of Satan in this place, any, any attempt that he brings to deceive, to harden a heart, to accuse you of injustice, to discourage, to confuse. Lord, I ask that you would stop every attempt of the enemy in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So verses 1 and 2. Are you there? Are you open to it? I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. That is quite a setup that Paul gives. He wants us to know what I'm about to say to you is not exaggeration. The Holy Spirit testifies to me. In some ways, what he's saying is, hey, on God, what I'm saying this is true. This is true. You can trust it. There's no exaggeration here. This is true. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now that's not what Paul's getting to. That is still the setup. But stop. What did Paul just tell us? We'll never be separated from the love of Christ. We, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. We're more than conquerors. God's working all things together for good. How in the world does Paul have great sorrow and unceasing anguish if he believes that? Is that a fair question? Do you see that? He goes from this ultimate glory of truth to great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart? Whatever empathy you have, activate it now. Notice, notice that Paul is someone who feels deeply. Remember that. Because he's going to say some very hard things. And if you read ahead later today and you start saying, What? Paul? What? Remember verse 2. Paul says, he, he's not just giving us a logical explanation of things without the emotion and feeling connected. Begin to, to imagine, what is great sorrow? What is unceasing anguish? Have you ever experienced something like that? Paul's saying, yeah, that's, that's what I experience. Why? Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Who's he talking about? Verse 4, they are Israelites. Why? Why does Paul have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his people? Because they reject their Messiah. They're not saved. They don't see. Do you feel the burden enter in that Paul has for his own people? Like, I am burdened for my lost family members. I'm burdened for your lost family members and friends and coworkers that we pray for. I am burdened for their soul. But this, this is something totally different. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Everything I told you in Romans 8, Paul says, I'm willing to throw it all away for the sake of my people. And really, what Paul is doing is he is demonstrating the heart of Christ in that. Do you realize that that is, Paul's saying, I would do that. But Jesus actually did it. How so? What do I mean? In Galatians, it says that he was made a curse for us. He was, he God made him who knew no sin to be sin. And then the beginning of Romans 8, which guys, hopefully we looked at in our homework this week and on Wednesday, right? God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? The flesh of his son on the cross. Jesus was cut off from the Father for our sake. Jesus, who enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father from eternity, gave it up 
in that moment on the cross for our sake. And in some ways, Paul is demonstrating that same love. He's expressing that same love. He's like, that's, that's what I feel for my people. And this is not to guilt us, but that is the heaviness that we have as Christians as we enter into this. That we, I hope we do, we know the joy in Christ. We know the pleasure and peace and hope that we have. And at the same time, we have this awareness of those who, who don't know it, of those who have died, and we're not sure where they are. We are not the ones who play games at funerals. We are not the ones who say they're in a better place. No, we, they're either with Jesus or they're somewhere else. And you know what that gives us? That gives us a healthy weight of this, of sorrow and anguish. And for us, our flesh can't comprehend both of those at the same time, that I have joy in Christ and I have this sorrow Paul's talking about. But that's what Paul describes. I think it's in Corinthians. I'm just throwing that out of thin air. I don't know if that's right. But he says, we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is the life of a Christian. It is a life of burden and yet rest, but only in Jesus. May God give us increased understanding of that. He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ. He's listing out the benefits of his people. That it was a blessing to be a Jew. You were God's original chosen people. That God spoke directly to your ancestors. I don't even know who my ancestors are. It means, it means like nothing to me. I'm German. That's about all I know. But if you're a Jew, you have this long history of promises, of God's voice, of the prophets, of God's interaction with your people. That's beautiful. You have the temple where the Shekinah glory of God would dwell in the days of old. You have all of these things that connect you to God. Paul's not overlooking those. He's saying, no, those have meaning. But they reject Christ. They fail to see their Messiah. So in verse 6, he says, Now it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why does it seem the word of God has failed? Why would Paul even suggest that? Well, let's look at some of the words of God. I'm going to give a few examples. In Exodus the second book of the Bible, God's bringing, he's going to bring out his, his people from slavery. And he says this, Moses, therefore tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Verse seven, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from forced labor to the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Promises. Jeremiah 30, 22. You will be my people and I will be your God. Exodus, um, this is not Exodus, this is Ezekiel. The next one, Ezekiel 36. 24 through 30. For I will take you from the nations. Now this is, this is way later. This is hundreds of years later. So much has happened. Israel has been rebellious. They have opposed God. They have disobeyed time and time again. He says, you're going into exile. And basically the book of Ezekiel, that's beginning to happen. Babylon's coming in, wrecking house, devastation, taking the Jews away into exile. And 
God says, he makes, another pro- he makes a promise again. He says, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. I will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Are you with me still? He keeps going. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful. I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful so you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of famine. And Paul says, look, these words of God, they've not failed. Because we could begin to think that or subtly assume that that maybe those don't apply anymore, that those are just gone. Because his people, again, they killed their Messiah. That's kind of the ultimate fail. When you reject your own Savior, you reject the fulfillment of promises. Because in Paul's day, and even today, we see a very, very much, for the most part, a blind Israel that does not accept Jesus as the Messiah. So, how has the word of God not failed? Because of this next line in in verse 6. This is a huge line right here. Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And this is where things begin to get messy. What in the world does that mean? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. This is a big and pivotal statement. Paul is going to go on to explain what he means, and he's going to refer back to the ancestors of Israel. So James, can you throw up that chart? Um, We're going to look at the ancestors of Israel real quick, okay? A little Old Testament survey here. All right. Abraham, he was the first, he was the beginning of Israel. He was just a random dude living in the Middle East, and God called him and said, Abraham, leave what you know, and I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham, in this sense, was the first Israelite, right? But the name Israel doesn't come until a couple generations later. So Abraham, God promises to make him a nation. The problem is, Abraham and his wife Sarah are super old, and they don't have any kids. So how do you make someone a great nation with those circumstances? God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have kids. And Sarah says to Abraham, well, I'm too old. It must not mean that I'm going to have the kid. You need to have the kid with someone else, right? So we have this slave named Hagar. Marry her. And then when she has a kid, that'll be our kid. This is the idea they come up with. So they do that plan. Abraham listens to the voice of his wife, just like Adam listened to the voice of his wife. And we get Ishmael. That's the descendant of Abraham, Ishmael. And God says, no. No, that is not... That is not the seed according to the promise. He is not the one I was talking about, Abraham. And, oh man, we're going to get to it. It says, what is the word, right? Because Paul's walking through this a little bit, but I'm just kind of um, summarizing it and putting it all on a screen right now. If you read, he says, what is the word? At this time, I will visit you and Sarah will have a son. I think Sarah is 90 when she has a kid. And Abraham is 100 years old. And they have Isaac. Isaac then marries Rebekah. That's the second generation. And then Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then from Jacob come the 12 tribes. God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means wrestled with God. And so that's where we get the name Israel for the nation, the 12 tribes of Israel, and Esau becomes a nation called the Edomites. 
So go to that next screen, James. But here, do you see the blue and the red? Can you guys see that? The blue and the red? Okay. The blue marks God's choice. God's chosen people. You have Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. God says, Ishmael, he, he tells Abraham, he's like, hey, I'm going to make a great nation of, of him too, but, but that, he's not my people. My people is the, the son I'm going to give you my way, Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob, and God makes another distinction. And this is what we talk about today. He says, Esau's not part of that. Jacob is the one who's going to bring forth that nation. And then the nation starts forming. We have the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And as you read your Bible, they're continually referred to over and over again. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The Pharisees took a lot of pride in in the fact that they were descended from these dudes, right? And then we have the 12 tribes of Israel. We could go through those names, and that's how they go into Egypt, right? And they multiply greatly, and they're in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, and by that time, they're a huge nation. So this, this is the ancestry, okay? Do we have a picture of how it works, of how things are pieced together a little bit? Okay, now let's get to verses 7 through 9. He's saying, not all Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Was Ishmael a descendant of Abraham? He was. He was. But God says, that's not what I'm talking about. I will have a specific line traced through you, Abraham. And honestly... I don't know, this is crazy. Sarah dies later in the story, obviously. Then Abraham remarries. He's like 110. And he has like a bunch of kids. A bunch of kids. But none of them were what God is talking about. So Abraham had a lot of descendants, even after Isaac. He already had a ton of sons. But Isaac is the one that the line is going to be traced through. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, okay? Just because Abraham had sons does not mean they are automatically the descendants God is talking about. But the children of the promise are considered to be offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So Paul makes a very important distinction here. Just like Abraham had two sons, but only one would become the promised people, so it is with the nation of Israel. He's using the fathers, the patriarchs, as an example of what he means when he says, not all Israel are Israel. Just because someone was born in, let's say, the tribe of you know, Issachar, right? One of the 12 tribes of Israel. Does not make them part of God's chosen people. That's very hard to understand. That's confusing, is it not? But that's what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, look, yeah, Israel rejects their Messiah as a whole. And he's going to continue. I'm thinking ahead of verses I read in 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11. And he brings a ton of Old Testament examples like Elijah. Elijah says, God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that's faithful. And God says, Elijah, I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to a false god. I have my faithful. I have my, and this is the, Paul, the, the term Paul's going to use, my remnant. Within Israel, God has his chosen remnant who believe and, and trust in the Lord, who are faithful. Just because they're a physical descendant of Israel does not make them part of God's truly promised people. This is mind-boggling. This is earth-shattering in this day, especially to the Jews. Why did they want to kill Paul? <laughs> Do you begin to see? Look what John the Baptist, in the time of Jesus, look what he says to the Pharisees, the Jews, the religious leaders, who were so confident in their 
heritage, in their history, in their ancestry. He says, don't presume to say to yourselves, Matthew 3, 9. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. John the Baptist begins to take away their foundation, what they're trusting in. John the Baptist begins to cut away and he says, no, just because you're part of a certain nation doesn't make you saved from your sin. You've still got a massive problem. You still need to, and part of this, this verse goes on to say, or before, he says, bring forth fruit of repentance. You need to repent. I don't care who your daddy is. I don't care where you came from. You need to repent. You need to be saved from your sin. And to the Jews, it's like, no, we're the people of God. We're the Jews. It doesn't matter. We're, that's who we are. So what does, he's saying, just because you're Jews doesn't mean you're saved, doesn't mean you're really God's child, which again is earth shattering. So what does make someone God's child? This is what we've talked about in Romans 1 through 8, is it not? What makes someone God's child? Being born again by putting your faith in Jesus. That makes you a child of God. But Paul is actually going to give us an even higher answer. Paul is going to answer that question from God's vantage point. We turn from looking at our experience of of salvation, and what is our experience of salvation? I put my faith in Jesus. That's my experience of salvation. And it better be yours. Because there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way. We go from looking at that experience to, what is God's view on that, though? From God's perspective, what is our salvation? And this this is a little big for our minds to comprehend. Verses 10 through 13. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. So Hagar had Ishmael. He's not the promise. He's not of the promise. Isaac is the promise. But now you have Rebekah and Isaac who didn't screw up and, you know, grab a slave and come up with this plot to fulfill God's promise on their own? No. They just had kids. And Rebecca has twins in her. And things are not going well with the pregnancy. If you look back in Genesis, it's rough. And Rebecca actually goes to God and she's like, what is going on? What is happening? And God says, there's two nations inside of you. There's two nations inside of you. And the older will serve the younger. There's a tension going on, Rebecca. For though her sons had not yet been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, which is not how it works back in that day, is it? The oldest is the one who gets the inheritance. The oldest is the one who is looked up to, who has the special privilege and favor. God turns the tables here. Who was born first, Esau or Jacob? Esau. He's the firstborn. But God says, Jacob, Jacob's going to be the one. Esau's going to serve Jacob. And then this is the passage that we have the hardest time with. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I don't know if we need to go into this, but I'll do it just for the sake, because that sounds so harsh. God hates Esau? Well, just, it could be similar to what Jesus said. If you're going to follow me, you have to hate your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, even your own life. But Jesus is not saying, have malice and ill intent toward people. No. He's saying, preference. That your love for me is so exclusive that everything else falls under that. Everything else 
is, is like hatred in comparison. That is what you need to understand. And so God says, I prefer Jacob, not Esau. What do you do with that? Well, Jacob obeyed and Esau didn't. Is that how the story goes? No. No, it's not. What does Jacob's name mean? Does anybody know? Deceiver. Heel grabber. That's what he was doing, coming out of the womb. He was holding on to Esau's heel. He is one who deceives. He stole his brother's birthright. He's, he did these weird conniving tricks with his uncle's, you know, flocks and herds so that he could get them and his uncle wouldn't get anything. He knows how to make things happen for himself. He's a deceiver. And Esau wasn't some great guy, great guy but look what it says. According to God's purpose, according to election, might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. Before they were born, God had chosen Jacob. God had chosen Jacob. God chooses or elects his children among humanity according to his own purpose. He chooses his children before they are even born. Why? So that all will know it's not because someone's works that God chooses, but because of his choice solely. This is also why Romans 2, all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11, is true. For there is no favoritism with God. What are you talking about, Hunter? What you just described is favoritism. He chose Jacob over Esau for no apparent reason. No. The distinction is verse 12. If God chose Jacob based on his behavior and choices, his human performance, this would be favoritism. Because of if God looks at Jacob and Esau and assesses them and says, yeah, I like what Jacob's doing. I'm going to choose him. That is favoritism. And God is choosing based off of what is in Jacob, not based off of God's what's in God and his purpose. And who gets to boast now by being chosen by God? Jacob. Jacob gets to say, God chose me because I was better, because I was good, because I did what was right. And verse 12 says that's not how it works. God chose before they were born so that we would know God chooses us not because we're good. God chooses us not because we figured it out. He chooses us according to his own purpose. God chooses his children according to his own purpose, not our, be- our performance or our loveliness. There is nothing we can do to win God over to our side or convince him to make us his children. He chose us before we were born. In fact, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us before he made the world. For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, in love before him. C.H. Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the past, said this, I believe the doctrine of election, what we're talking about today, because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he would have looked upon me with special love. But beloved Christian today, that is exactly what God has done to you. He has looked upon you with special love. Begin to meditate on that. Begin to receive that today so this raises a lot of questions and maybe i'm raising questions that aren't in your mind so forgive me but these are questions that theologians and people have wrestled with for years 
What about the people God doesn't choose? What about free will? Did I choose God or did he choose me? If God chose me, then do I have to do anything? If God didn't choose me, is there anything I can do? If God didn't choose me, am I still responsible for my sin? I don't know if these are any of the questions that enter your mind, but they're the ones I wrestle with. And I'm not going to try to answer them all today, but hopefully I can help answer the most pressing ones. But Paul does, uh, does address some of these in the following verses. But maybe this raises more than questions. Maybe it raises doubts and accusations against God. That's what Paul begins to address in the very next verse. We're not going to get to it today, but in verse 14, Paul says this, in, in typical fashion, as he's done in Roman, he asks, his own, he asks a question and then answers it. He says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? And what is his familiar answer we've seen in Romans 8? Absolutely not. <laughs> and that's all we get today. We don't get why there's no injustice with God. We just get the answer, no, he's not unjust. But we can begin to feel like that. That's not fair to Esau. That's not fair to Ishmael. That's not fair. Why doesn't God choose everybody? Why doesn't God choose everybody? Beloved, he, 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 he doesn't choose everybody. He does not choose everybody. And I'm going to stand on that by the word of God. So we have to wrestle with this. And I want to challenge us that this is the very word of our God, and I believe it is clear. If you are dismissing it in your mind as simply my interpretation, oh, that's Hunter's interpretation, then I challenge you to present another interpretation, maybe after the service or this week, let's talk about this, and we will weigh it honestly together as best we can. But let's not play around with the word of God. As we ponder this and ask questions, let's remember our place and God's place. He is the one who chooses. We don't get to say who is chosen and who is not. That's not our place. I don't get to draw those conclusions. I don't get to say about this group of people or about this person, well, they're not chosen by God. No, there's never a point in my life where I get to declare that. That's arrogance. That is stepping beyond the role and the place God has given me. It's not my place to say that. Our place is to give thanks and praise Him for choosing us when we didn't deserve to be chosen. Our place is to make Him known everywhere to all people. That's what God has given to us. We proclaim His name to all people because we don't know who's chosen and not. We're not going to go out there and say, well, I think that person's chosen. I'll tell them about God. You know what we get to do? We get to assume that everyone's chosen while recognizing Scripture lets us know that's not the case. Because broad is the way to destruction. And how many are going that way? Many. Many. That's where sorrow and unceasing anguish enters the picture. Because we live our lives and we watch many go that way. What can happen now, though? Well, our place is to proclaim the glory of His grace to all people everywhere. You realize that's what Jesus did? That Jesus is God. He could have used the knowledge of who was chosen and who wasn't and spoke only to who He wanted to. But he chose to speak the truth and love to the very people who were going to kill him. Do you realize that? What can happen now is we have the urgent need for a sense of resolve. So we try desperately to find that resolve. The problem is that it can often lead to wrong conclusions. Just so we can feel safe again. But we are safe in Jesus. Because I, I, that's too big for me to comprehend. Like, like that's, 
that I, I wish I didn't know this, Paul. <laughs> I wish I didn't know this. I would be fine if I didn't know this. But why is Paul telling us this again? Why? There's that question. Because he needs us to know, look, God doesn't lose his children. It looks like Israel has rejected God. It looks like they're done because now the way is open to us Gentiles and we're believing and Israel's rejecting. It looks like that. But look, from God's perspective, he knows what he's doing and he has his chosen people in Israel. Within Israel, he has his chosen people just like he has his chosen people in the Gentiles. So what we need to realize is when we start thinking about this and letting this kind of mull over in our minds, we begin to ask, like, those big questions come into our mind. Those big thoughts of like, wait, 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 what? And what we need to realize is we're not safe in the understanding of being able to fit everything together and piece everything together nicely. So, okay, here's, that's religion. Religion says, okay, here's all my beliefs and my understandings and my rules and my standards. Awesome. It's all a controlled system that I can depend on. But fortunately, we have a relationship with Almighty God, with the infinite God. We're finite. He's infinite. And yet somehow we have a relationship there. And so we're going to come to moments like this where it's a little too big for our brains. It's a little too big for our brains. Our security must not be found in feeling like we understand everything and having everything fit together in a nice box. Our security must be found in knowing we are the chosen of God and we have his love forever. We have Christ. Now, I keep saying we're the chosen of God like I know that. But maybe the second most important question today, maybe the most important, is how do I know I'm chosen? How do you know you're chosen by God? You think you're chosen? You tell someone that, right? Arrogant. Who are you to think that of yourself? Who are you to think you're the chosen of God? You know what? I'm going to confidently declare this morning, I am chosen by God. You know why I say that? You know why I'm confident in that? Because I trust in Jesus. Maybe that sounds weak. (laughs) Maybe that sounds like a Sunday school cop-out answer. But that that is the risk we take. We bet everything on Jesus saving us and choosing us. The fact that I know Jesus, and I love him, is not a testament to how good I am, or what I figured out, or some level of religious righteousness I've reached. No. That evidence that I see in my life, that faith that I have in Jesus, is just evidence that tells me he chose me. He chose me because I trust in Jesus. I'm betting it all on that. All of it. It's that simple. It's as simple as John 3.16. For God so loved the world, this, loved the world this, in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus? Is he your savior and Lord? If so, then walk forward believing that God chose you. For some of you in here, Maybe your faith is struggling. Maybe you're feeling weak and you begin to wonder. And this, this brings fear into your heart. Am I saved? Am I chosen? I don't know. How do I know? And that is not at all what God has for you. That's not where God desires you to be. His perfect love casts out fear. You will not find a security for your soul in anything other than than faith in Jesus. It is faith. We are those who trust in Jesus. Because I can look at my track record. I can look at my feelings. I can look at my experience. I can look at my struggles. And you know what they don't tell me? 
so often they don't tell me, man, you're chosen by God. No, they tell me, you're messed up. You're one messed up dude, Hunter. All I have is faith in Jesus. Do you know that song we sing? Do you realize how powerful it is? Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. It begins to make sense when you start to feel this. Who are you that God would choose you? You know what our response is if, if we're asked that, if the devil asks you that, if some, a person asks you that? You know what your response is? It's an echo. Who am I that God would choose me? But he has. But he did. Because he revealed his son to me. I see Jesus on the cross and I believe. So does God choose us or do we choose him? Yes. 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 Now, this, this is where we see that in Scripture. If you look at our passage in Romans 9, and then you look at John 3.16, that Romans 9 is telling us God chooses, and John 3.16 is telling us whoever believes. Some will say that's a contradiction. How can God choose His children in Romans 9 and then say whoever believes in Jesus will be saved? How can that be? And this is one of the places in Scripture where things don't fit in a nice box for us. Yes is not a nice answer to those questions, to that question. Because it doesn't totally connect for us. We can't totally get our hands around it. Like we can something like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Just, it's a cold, hard fact. Bam, there it is. From Scripture, we see God is one, yet three. That's a contradiction. No, but it is beyond us. It is beyond us. We have enough understanding to believe it is true and know God, but we don't have enough understanding to completely comprehend and piece it all together. What bridges the gap? Faith. God has given us enough to believe but not enough to not believe. Because if God gave us everything, all the answers, we wouldn't need faith. If God was here, I wouldn't need to be on stage. God, I mean, God is here in spirit, but even that, how do we know? By faith. If God appeared tangibly, tangibly before our eyes this morning, what wouldn't we need? Are you with me? I know it's been a while. I know this is heavy stuff, but faith. I need faith. So let's wrap it up with the original question Paul's addressing. Does God lose his children? Did God lose Israel? The answer, no. No, he does not and he did not. Within Israel, God has his faithful ones, which Paul will show us repeatedly from the Old Testament in the coming verses. So what does this mean for us? Well, we know it from other verses, but we see it here, that God has not forsaken his people Israel to this day, and he will not forsake us. God does not lose his children. So here's the takeaway. And it's too easy for this to just be a statement that we kind of throw out there. But man, there is such a depth to the experience of it. And I long for you to enter into that. Believe that God chose you and worship Him for it. Do you realize how insane that is? Did you realize? Who, who are you? There are billions of people that have existed. Billions! And God chose you? There's something in that, beloved. If God chooses everyone, it doesn't make it as special, does it? By the very fact that God doesn't choose everyone, if you don't believe that, if you believe God chose everyone, then you will not understand the value of God choosing you. Because God does not choose everyone. 
God did not choose Esau. God did not choose Ishmael. But God chose you. And why would I say that? Well, one, I I can't know that, but I believe it because you're here. I believe it because, not because just because you're in church, but because something in your heart is seeking Him. Something, in, something is drawing you to God. That's evidence. That's not proof, but it's evidence. But your faith in Jesus is, is the best evidence that you're chosen. Give thanks and rejoice. There are a lot of questions to answer, but don't let those questions shroud your faith and keep you from worship. Think about it. Of all the people of the world, God chose you. Ugh, I don't know if I want to read this. <laughs> a lot of people will spend eternity under God's wrath in the lake of fire. That's where it just... When, when a preacher says that or something like that, we, we just kind of enter anime. Like, what? Everything's fake. Like, how do I even comprehend that? The destiny of those who will endure the wrath of God. That's brutally hard to think about, much less accept. But for no other reason than God's mercy, he chose to save you and make you his child. When my grandpa died in 2020, I was there with my dad weeping over him as he was taking his last breaths. We pleaded with him to trust in Christ. But he died, and we don't know if he did or not. And that was really frustrating to me. I really wrestled with the Lord on that for these past years. Because we had witnessed to my grandpa. We had prayed for him. Many of you (laughs) prayed for my grandpa. You know, this past decade. But God did not see fit to reveal to me one way or the other. And and that's, (laughs) I'm thankful for that rather than knowing my grandpa, you know, going to his is taking his last breaths to blaspheme God, right? That would kind of tell me <laughs> one way or another. But I'm thankful I don't have that clarity. I have to humble myself and realize, man, I don't get to know. I don't get to know. What I shouldn't do is preoccupy myself with the question, was he chosen or not? <laughs> That's not what I'm asking. That's not what I spend my time asking. God has not given that to me. That's not a helpful question to ask. God, um, I get to trust my grandpa into the Lord's hands. For now, I don't get to know where he is. Being a believer is full of heartbreak. We love Jesus and enjoy the unbelievably amazing benefits of being his children, Romans 8, while simultaneously we share in Christ's sorrow and anguish for those we love who don't believe in their Savior. That's Paul in verses 1 and 2. That's Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Christ's heart broke for sinners. Paul's heart breaks for sinners. Newsflash. We follow them. We imitate Christ. We follow Jesus. Our hearts are going to break. They're going to break. We don't try to work around that so we don't have to feel sad. No, we lean into the sadness with hope and the joy of Christ. But there's still, we've got to, we're going to endure that. Our hearts are going to break for those who are lost. And they should But again, as we sit in these chapters, we must come back to the gospel again when we're confused, afraid, or overwhelmed. Come back to the simple truth. And I have had to do this so many times in my life. We have to come back to the simple truth that Jesus loves you and gave his life for you. 
When you get lost in the complexity and bigness of God, which you will, when you see God, there's going to be moments where you're just like, I don't even know. I, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Like, this is so vast. How in the world do I have a relationship with the creator of the universe? It's a, it's, it is an insane notion to begin with. We get so used to it, we forget that. But there'll be moments where it becomes real to you. Maybe in a worship, when you're worshiping in song, or just a random moment in life that hits you and you're just like, wow. That's why we sing songs. Behold our God. I'm overwhelmed. I'm in awe. Because we're trying to bring these truths from being like just facts that we've accepted to things that are alive and true. And sometimes they're going to overwhelm us. So we have to come back to simple childlike faith that says, Jesus loves me, this I know. There's been times in my life where I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so weighed down with my sin, with the complexity of life, with understanding God and my relationship with Him. And either it's my mom or it's a song or it's just the Holy Spirit that comes along and says, what is the truth, Hunter? I love you, son. I love you. It's going to be okay. But on the other side, don't just ignore the hard, deep things in Scripture because they are hard and deep. Part of growing in the Lord is seeking to know Him more and grow in your understanding. Well, the book of Revelation? I don't know what to do with that. So I'm just going to leave it over there. The prophets? I don't know what to do with half the stuff they're saying, so I'm just going to leave it over there. Romans 9 through 11? We'll just leave that over there. Let's just go to chapter 12. No. God has something for for us in this right here. This is how Paul ends Romans 9 through 11. This is how he ends that section right before chapter 12. And this is where we're going to end. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope they're still open, go to Romans chapter 11. Okay, let's go there together. All right. We looked at 13 verses. Paul has a lot more to say in chapter 9, in chapter 10, in chapter 11. A lot to say. But this is how he ends it right here. Are you there? Chapter 11, verse 33. This is what Paul says. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has given to God that he should be repaid? The answer? (laughs) No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. 